0: Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Did you know that the post-acute and long-term care setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates? which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions. Join AMDA's new initiative. It's called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC. The kickoff meeting will be held on Thursday, May 20th. Learn more at paltc.org slash drive, the number two, deprescribe. Well, it is
1: 12 o'clock, so... Let me say a few introductory things before we get full-fledged into our program today, and that is that this journal club uh, is the inspiration of Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda, and she is otherwise engaged today and turned it over to me, Amir mere novice and neophyte at managing this journal club, but we'll do our best. It is being recorded today because FMDA, Florida Medical Directors Association, which is the largest multidisciplinary professional healthcare organization in Florida, and it's not medical directors anymore, attending physicians, geriatric nurse practitioners, clinical consultant pharmacists, directors of nurses, nursing home administrators, social workers, uh, PAs, NPs, and interested parties. So we're multidisciplinary in the space of long-term care. Long-term care, post-acute care after the hospital, but many of the residents we take care of are in assisted living and didn't have a hospital admission prior to that. Some of them are in skilled care and they often did have the three midnight stay. Many of them are in long-term custodial nursing home care. So FMDA, which is much shorter to say than the Florida Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, FMDA, FAMDA, is in the space of the frail and the elderly. And it is in that regard that we have become the hub, the communication hub, for much of geriatric medicine, long-term care medicine, assisted living medicine in the state of Florida, and we've been recognized nationally as the largest state chapter, and we hope one of the most influential as a hub. As a hub, Florida Geriatric Society, Florida Healthcare, Florida Hospital, Florida Quality Coalition, and many other associations, Fadona, the Florida Director of Nurses Association, and others, really come to us as spokes of the big wheel, the flywheel of great long-term care geriatric medicine. So, FMDA with the leadership of Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda for this journal club is happy to host today. And we're going to the discussion, and as you all know, there will not be a journal article today, but only the wise thoughts of you participants. And we need your wise thoughts in this vaccination hesitancy program that we're tackling at FMDA. The state of Florida is very interested in what we're doing because hopefully what we're doing is powerful, will make a difference in the long-term care space, make a difference in the lives of the frail, the elderly, and our staff who serves them. So COVID-19 impact tackling skilled nursing facility, long-term care vaccination hesitancy. So many of you are on mute, but I want you to quickly come off of mute when you have ideas that will make a difference. And I just, and before I even go any further, are there any thoughts about what I've said about FMDA, the long-term care space, the frail, the elderly, or are the vaccination in general and hesitancy about getting the vaccination? Anyone wanna start off with any leading thoughts? and help frame the discussion today. So we do have some PowerPoint agenda items up and we can use those. But I just want to start off by asking, what do you think is the goal of a vaccination program for COVID-19 in long-term care? Long-term care, and it could include home health space. It could include Uh, and does include assisted living, skilled care, custodial care, the long-term care, and the post-hospital space. What do you think is the major goal of COVID-19 vaccination programs? So we can talk about vaccination hesitancy, but why be vaccinated at all? What's the goal of being vaccinated? Uh, Raise your hand, take yourself off mute, uh, Speak up right there. Anyone have any ideas about what's the major go? Uh, I think as a Six Sigma student uh, with only a yellow belt, I'm certainly not a black belt, we almost always look at root cause or root effect. And I think the number one reason for COVID-19 vaccination program in long-term care is to stay alive. It's it's to stay alive. It's so we don't die of COVID-19. And that may come up in a bit, but as a hospice and palliative care doctor, as well as a medical director and a geriatrician, much of my last year plus has been working in the intensive care unit and the COVID units, which overwhelmed the hospitals with the very seriously ill and the dying patients. So I worked every day with the patients and their families of the dying patients. So for me, the number one goal is to stay alive. Anybody have any other ideas? I think under that, staying well, that we don't even get sick, that we don't lose our taste, that we don't lose smell, that we don't have uh, long hauler effects of respiratory insufficiency. So staying alive, staying well. And Ian posted in this chat, Ian, did you do that to everyone? That chat, staying safe. We, We wanna stay safe. We wanna stay safe from COVID from COVID complications. We want to say stay safe from a vaccine that might have unsafe adverse effects. So staying alive, staying well, and staying safe, I believe, would be the goals.
2: Leonard, I think, hi. Dr.
1: Kaplan, thank goodness you're speaking up.
2: Um, No, and I think the the corollary uh, to that would be to extend that same thought process to our family, immediate family, our relatives, our friends, our colleagues, etc. And unfortunately, this is an illness that uh, leaves some of the long-term sequelae that I don't think I've ever seen. I'm not sure the medical profession has ever seen with garden variety, influenza, etc. when I'm talking about the long haulers, of course. So it's not just Can you get over the illness? Do you have a mild or moderate form, okay? Are you really gonna be left uh, with some long-term adverse sequelae that can adversely impact your life for years to come? So I think there are multiple different reasons.
1: Well, I wanna say such great points. I wanna say, I did not say the group that we want to stay alive, stay well and stay safe in long term care, we think of our residents, our patients, our residents. But you know, most of them, greater than 80%, sometimes 90% of the residents in long term care have been vaccinated. They were the priority here in Florida, thank goodness. So now we're looking at the other people, Bob, Dr. Kaplan, that you said, looking at all the groups, and it is the families who love our residents, it's the staff and not just the direct patient care staff, the med techs, the the CNAs, the patient care technicians, the nurses, but how about the environmental services staff, the facility staff, the food services staff, the linen staff, it's everybody that we care, the goal, stay alive, stay well, and stay safe. And you mentioned Dr. Kaplan absolutely appropriately The long haulers may have very serious illness. In the intensive care unit, we would see people come off the ventilators, come off of the BiPAP, go to a step down COVID unit. And because of very stiff lungs, two weeks later, these people had very long hospital stays, the seriously ill ones. Then two or three weeks later, they would start to have air leaks, pneumomediastinum, So even in a long hospital stay, we saw sequelae of serious, life-threatening sequelae of COVID. There are less serious sequelae that we're starting to see and understand is related. That may be loss of taste. It may be slightly shortness of breath that you cannot do the seven minute mile in your 5K race because you're breathless. It could be other sequelae that we're starting to understand. One of the important points is also what is the sequelae, the untoward consequences, the adverse responses to the vaccine itself? One of the reasons people give for not taking the vaccine is they don't know if it's safe. Well, I think we with medical knowledge and understanding the data that's coming out, the vaccine may have some consequences, perhaps blood clots in less than one-tenth of one percent of the recipients with one of the vaccines. But we know for certain that the disease can kill you. So the disease has fatal consequences in a population, significant It has long hauler consequences in the population. The vaccine has few adverse effects or long-term consequences that we've identified. I think that's just such an important message for those that use that as their reason to hesitate or resist the the vaccine. And Dr. Sandra Cepeda has joined us on the line, and please, uh, Diane, please uh, be involved. Take over this moderator role. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. We were just introducing uh, the topic about why FAMDA is taking on the project of improving vaccinations in long-term care. And I said the goal was so people would live, so they would live well, and so they could be safe. So that would be the goal of getting the vaccine, but actually isn't that the goal of healthcare and modern medicine? To stay alive, stay well, and be safe. So the vaccine just is another tool to help people live, be well, and be safe. And Dr. Kaplan uh, was contributing uh, that it's not just our residents and patients that we want to live, be well, and be safe, but their families and the staff in nursing facilities. So, which is, which is so important. So Diane, uh, I see Edna on there. I haven't talked to Edna forever. (laughs) So it's wonderful to see your audience. Diane, please continue. And Shane can put your slide set up if you wish
3: yeah i would i would really or appreciate actually jackson um, jackson if you can share that screen again i think um you know i, I thank you dr Hawk for uh, pitch hitting for me and thank you everyone who's who's on you know i know we wanted to if you go to the next slide we wanted to really define the problem and it sounds like um dr Hawk, you were definitely going into that definition of what really vaccine hesitancy is and how it is the, the ongoing challenge that we're experiencing with COVID. Um, if you go to the next slide, you know we know that um, we've seen a shrinking of the eagerness. And so this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation where when we look back um, as we've been vaccinating more people, we are now seeing that a lot more individuals are in the wait to see or definitely not. Um, bucket and that, th- those numbers aren't really changing. If you go to the next slide for me, I think I've shared this with our group before um, because there is a real challenge around that the post acute long term care spaces. When we look at how many people um, have um, surveyed who have reported that they have either not yet decided or not planning on getting vaccinated, what we see is that within our populations, the nursing homes, the assisted care facilities, and I'm gonna add in in in-home care, so those home health organizations, we see a greater percentage of those individuals in our our, um, settings. As we move um, forward to the next slide, I just wanna share what vaccine hesitancy really means, because I think this is where a lot of people Maybe get tripped up. You know, it's not the same as the anti-vax movement. This is really a delayed acceptance or refusal of vaccination, despite access and availability. So that becomes the key. I think in in the the beginning, when we were first. we first started vaccinating more of the public and not just the health. When you're thinking about vaccine hesitancy, is about access and availability. What we saw when we were able to increase availability in communities of um, color and in, um, in certain urban settings, we were able to get more people to access those vaccines. So it really becomes to the point of looking at why is a person still hesitant? And as I mentioned, anti-vax is not the same as vaccine hesitancy. The anti-vaxxer movement is really being against vaccines. When we see someone who's truly hesitant, they are really either avoiding it or refusing um, um, to do this or refusing to even accept the, the need of this. So I think that represents an opportunity to educate and to really get in front of them and have these conversations. So the next question becomes, why is this important in our SNFs? And if you, Jackson, can proceed to the next slide. Diane, may I ask? Mm -hmm.
1: So can you talk a bit about the anti-vax movement? On the third slide that showed, there were 13% of the population that said never. That's probably the anti-vaxxers. So when we talk about them, define them for us? What kind of people are they? Is that, are they anti-vax in their, per, in their personal life? Or are they promoters of everyone not being vaccinated? Are they activists? Or are they just quietly never going
3: to get it themselves? I think there's a mixture within that group. Um, when the movement first started many, I think, decades ago, it was around people who were worried that the vac- vaccines were causing um, cognitive delays in their children or there may be um, an association with autism. And it sort of um, grew to, into not wanting to really be vaccinated for themselves as well. And I think you know you have that and then there are some groups who are more politically motivated. Um, but. It, it really is a diverse group where you really think about who makes up that anti-vaxxer um, movement. And we see different pockets now in different states. And, and it felt like, I think when um, I was in medical school that it was only in uh, on the West Coast, but you see different pockets and some of it is um, may be grounded in their cultural beliefs, may be grounded in their religious beliefs, but there's a diversity amongst that group too. And I think we need to take that into account.
1: So the ones who personally, quietly are anti-vaxxers, that's, that's their decision. Now, we could have the public health argument that maybe they put others at risk and they're not vaccinated, they're not part of herd immunity. So that's another discussion. But the ones who are anti-vaxxer activists, who are speaking against all vaccinations, COVID-19 being one of those, they represent a significant problem for those 87% that you're about to talk about who aren't committed against it, but who are hesitant or worried or concerned or have belief systems or peer pressures. But that 80, yeah, and I, if, if we could get to that 87% who are mm-hmm. hesitant, but might take it.
3: Yeah, and I think that's where the opportunity is. I think that the the concern that I have around that movement is the misinformation that is getting shared. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but social media changes everything. And um years ago, this wasn't a a, a problem. Not everyone and their mother wasn't on Facebook or everyone wasn't able to to tweet, (laughs) you know? So I think that what we're seeing now uh, is that there's so much information that is being sent and there's such ease at um, communicating misinformation. And much of my conversations with people who have been hesitant has been around those, um, the fear, but more fear driven from the misinformation. This was um, this was just one example of why we will want our our staff to be vaccinated because one person can impact um, a, an entire outbreak at a facility. And this facility, I believe, was in Kentucky, and we saw where this one single person. Um, set off an outbreak amongst the residents who were immunized already. Most of them were asymptomatic, but some did have symptoms. So that is something we need to take into consideration. And if we move the, the next slide forward, um, what was shared with us um, by ACA is that when we look at SNP vaccination rates, and this was from data back in April, we see that we were at a 68.82 percent of having SNF residents vaccinated, and a 37.88 percent of SNF staff. And That's a huge discrepancy because when you look at facilities across the state, that means that some of our facilities have um, maybe upwards of 50 percent of the staff, or better vaccinated and some may have 10% of the staff vaccinated. So we we are seeing a lot of variability and that was the reason behind um, our organization really wanting to take the lead on tackling uh, vaccine confidence and, and promoting vaccine confidence. If you move to the next slide for me, um, as Dr. Hawk had mentioned, the challenges to achieving vaccine confidence It really comes from a lot of misinformation i i am not one of the people and maybe i'm a little bit old-fashioned i don't really like social media as much um and ian didn't hear me say that because i do follow uh famda on everything (laughs) but it is i just think it's a a, um and and source of information that like a, a possibility to get a lot of wrong information and that was just from going way back to being the physician in the room with the patient who said, well, I, I read this on Facebook and um, I think I need to have this or that supplement. So I think we've all been aware, we've all had to come in contact with the misinformation and with COVID, there was so much of that, that then leads to um, that that fear and the distrust. Oh, Diane, so, may, I ask, mm-hmm. may
1: I ask, if you had to pick yeah. the two, most important misinformation points, what, what would you pick? What, what do you think is out there on social media or the news or at the church or walking in the neighborhood? What are the two biggest misinformation points?
3: The two biggest are that the COVID vaccine will change my DNA and that I will become infertile. Those are the two big ones that I've heard. And I've heard the infertility conversation now from both women and men. And um, I've, uh, you know, the, the change in my DNA, I, I think I've shared with you um, and I'll share with everyone that I had a conversation with someone who's very educated. Um, she is a, a national VP of um, a hospice organization. And we had to have a conversation on the that c- the COVID vaccine would not transform her sickle cell trait to sickle cell anemia, but that was a belief that she'd had, and um, she shared that this information came to her. Uh, people who had been sending her things online, and she was really worried. And then the infertility question like i said i've now received that from men and women men who believe that they wouldn't be able to father children and women who were worried um, that they couldn't get pregnant after getting this shot who may who may have been nurses um other medical um, professionals and and that is just so prominent so those are the the top two that i have experienced Um, when it comes to distrust the the conversation that I've heard the most that has been around um, from the African-American community uh, and Latino community a- around not trusting the government, the CDC, whomever, politicians, and it really stems from a deep seated distrust in, a, in governmental programs and the fact that this rolled out that way. And I think everything that leads, um, it just sort of reinforces fear um around the safety and the efficacy of the vaccines and what we saw when johnson and johnson had to be pulled you know was i, th- I thought that was a great thing that this, the cdc and the fda did because you wanted to review those cases unfortunately it is um sort of reinforced a lot of um, the the shopping of vaccines and the reasons why i don't want to get one at all um, conversations um, because now they're like, oh, well, this may not be safe anymore. That's what I'm hearing um, from a lot of people.
1: You know, can I just ask again?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We, we often refer back with justification of distrust in a minority population based on the Tuskegee experiment. Do, do you want to just comment on what that experiment was?
3: Yes. Um, so some, we
1: hear the words, but we may not know the whole story.
3: Yeah, so for anyone who um, is not aware, there was a, um, a very, a study that went on for decades um, um, with in Tuskegee where they were telling people that they were treating them and giving them um, um, things to help build their, their blood and build everything. But it was really um, these men had syphilis and they were not getting adequate treatment for that. So they were actually being um, subject to just, expect, I think it comes down to experimentation and um, they were not being treated for their conditions. many of them did not even know that they had syphilis. And until when, the, when everything was revealed in the seventies, um, many of them were unaware of their actual condition. And that story lives on in the the minds and hearts of um, people in the South, as well as throughout this country, African-American people. Um, It's something that gets spoken about, you know, all the time actually. Uh, And and that's one of those um, big issues that we've seen with uh, African-American communities trusting, Um, hospital systems and trusting governmental programs.
0: And now, a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care.
4: Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning is highly committed to making the Goals of Care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At U.S. Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening.
2: I think that... Uh, what I've seen, some of the literature seems when they categorize the two broad broadest, let me put it that way, categories at the top that I think have come out with regard to uh, when people are asked, why are you hesitant to take the vaccine? No question, safety is number one. And I think that extends in, will I become infertile? Okay, will it affect my DNA uh, to the standpoint? Okay, and now obviously with J&J, will I develop a cerebral thrombosis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, venous, whatever sign. And then I think number two, um which uh we need to consider as well is actually there's a lot of concern about the rapidity of the development of the vaccine people are just so concerned how this effective safe vaccine could have been produced and put on the market in nine months essentially plus minus compared with historically obviously which we're all aware of being you know anywhere from two to three to five to eight ten years uh, vaccine development to ensure safety, et cetera. So um, I, I think the two broad categories that I've seen are safety and rapidity of
3: development. I actually had a conversation with um, someone on, I believe, Sunday about the, um, the the rapid nature of this development. And, and we really had to sit down and talk, talk to them and inform them of the fact that The companies who uh, were doing, uh, who developed these vaccines, stopped working on everything else. They put 100% or 200% of their time and attention into the um, vaccine development. And it is really a testament to um, human ingenuity and not something to be distrusted. Uh, I think that after that conversation, the person did share that she made an appointment for a vaccine, and she was, um, I believe she was 22. Share was scared because it came out too fast, but sitting there and talking with her and listening to what she had to share and then just, you know, giving her back the facts really made a difference for that one person. And, i believe we had a uh, in in our discussions on how to roll out our initiative i feel i think that we've talked a lot about these personalized conversations these one on one conversations and if you could do me a favor jackson and move to the next slide you know i think that's where we really want to go with um, this initiative that we're we're going to try and reach out to these facilities and invite people to, such as yourself to share our stories, and I don't want to be the only one talking <laughs> because I feel like I'm always talking. But um, I did ask one of our um, uh, one of our members, um, Carmel Casimir, if she could come on and share um, how she's having these conversations. She works in Miami-Dade County, which we do know has a significantly high. Um, Um, percentage of vaccine hesitancy among stiff staffs. So, Carmel, I don't know if you're on the line, but if you are, I, I invite you to unmute yourself and turn your camera on and maybe share what you're doing and how you're having these conversations.
5: Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure for me to be invited and then talk about, can you guys hear me?
1: We can. Here, yes.
5: here we can't see you yet. All right. So it's a pleasure for me to be here with you um, because in the Miami-Dade area, we do have uh, hesitancy on the vaccine, on the Asian community, um, Spanish community, and Black community. And the reason why, because I go to the nursing home, as we can attest to that, the patient did not go out and get COVID. The COVID was brought into them. So that's the same cycle of, like, I found that nurses, CNAs, housekeeping, other members of the staff, the nursing staff, and then physical therapists, they refuse their hesitancy of getting the vaccine. Uh, I did talk to some of the people, even some of my nurse practitioners did not want to get the vaccine. And the Catholic Health Services, like um, Villa Maria, that is one of the nursing homes we work with, and then we have Sentence, and then we have St. John, where the medical director had to make it mandatory for the staff to take the vaccine. And due to that, they lost a lot of staff because of that, because they refused to take the vaccine, either the job or the vaccine. So they walk in short just because the staff, nursing staff refuse the vaccine. So what I think that is like when I went to the Asian community or the nurses to ask them why it's like you don't want the vaccine, uh, not only they have a fear and then as everybody, as Dr. Sanders just mentioned, fear, misinformation, there's uh, there's also efficacy. Uh, So they look at it to see how effective it is. And then they don't want to be the first one. They don't want to be the last one, some of them. But the safety and efficacy of the vaccine, they don't know what it's going to do. And most of them on the age population, uh, the Asian population, they say they get the BCG vaccine. And then they think they are human. And then the way the BCG vaccine was given to them, that was not the proper way. So that's still like from the past, And then they think that the vaccine was like, probably expired when they get it. And not only they uh, look at that as one of the uh, stigma or like one of the myth, that's why they don't want to take the vaccine. They also don't believe that if it was good, it will be free. And then, so the vaccine is free. And then they have like, some of them have transportation issues. And then some of them, they have language barrier. And then there's a lot when we look at it, why they don't take the vaccine. And then they believe also on herbal medicine, like tea. They will rather drink the tea as they want to instead of like getting the vaccine. So uh, like Dr. Sanders mentioned, I don't want uh, people to just go ahead and look at it because Uh, misinformation and then talking to other people it's really hard to see what are they doing because I met with a doctor and then he's an Asian doctor and then I'm like oh I took my vaccine and then it's like oh you did that I'm like yes he said no I'm not going to take it so I'm like why because like the immunity some of them they think they had COVID and then they they are immunized. they are they have immunity And then they don't know if the vaccine is going to counteract with the immunity that they have from having the COVID. That's what the belief is. So it's a lot, a lot to take in consideration. And more likely some of them, they don't have money to go back and forth. And then they say they cannot afford being out two or three days out of work. And it's, it's really a, um uh, burden on doing education and teaching them uh, one of the nurses that i met and then she said oh somebody's out like two days because of that i cannot afford to be out for the first one two days and the second one another two days some of them they don't have any symptoms so it's like educating them i did put myself at villa maria one of our biggest nursing home to educate the staff and then nowadays like yesterday i was there they have a list because it's like mandatory. They have to take it, but at the same level, you don't want it to be mandatory. It's required, but not mandatory. So this is what we are facing. There's like a lot of things we are facing, like I mentioned. And I'm going to just go ahead and give it back to Dr. Sanders.
3: Or if you guys have any questions, yeah, you let can me answer. ask you. Yeah, let me ask you a couple of questions, Carmel, because that is. Um, I think you brought up a couple of interesting points. Um, I, I I didn't think, I, and if anyone else has heard about the the concerns on around being off from work following vaccinations, I, I think that's interesting. I know that we have facilities in the state of Florida, and um, I've heard of other facilities across the country who, who are trying to incentivize. Their um, staff and and give them dollars uh, to go and get the vaccine. Um, I know there was a couple of facilities or in the county that I'm at who did give a complimentary day off following the vaccination. So I, I'm I thought that was an interesting um, point. But what my question is for you is, given. You know, some of those concerns and the fact that we know that we have a high population of um, CNAs who may be of Haitian descent, what can we start doing to speak to their concerns in that community?
5: Uh, To speak to their concern on that community. First, it's like education because there's a lack of education, because uh, you can be sick or you request a day off. And then what I noticed in that uh, community, on that area of the housekeeping, CNAs, they even they don't even take time off, because some of them, they have two or three jobs. And then they don't even take time off, because for the vaccine, which they, they are not sick, they don't believe on, like, the vaccine's going to be efficace, uh, The efficacy, of the vaccine is going to be. um, They don't know. It's like the unknown about the vaccine efficacy and safety and all that. For me to take the day off and then to go ahead and get the vaccine, I was, and then I heard one of them said, I'm not sick. I'm not going to get sick from the vaccine. So it's because that the two days after you take the vaccine, some of them are sick, some of them are not sick. So as long as like the person is not, directly involved on like getting sick. So they said, let me walk. So what we can do for that Dr. Diane, uh Dr. Sanders, as you asked, what we can do for that community. I think we can put incentive out there if we can to just go ahead and say, okay, we are giving you two hours or like take it on Friday, you off on Saturday, or like some reward thing, because I'm looking at them why are you not taking the vaccine? What can I do for you, just for you to get the vaccine?
1: And I would like to ask, education is important. On one of Dr. Sanders Cepeda's first slides, we had the 13% that would never take it. But one of that group was they're waiting to see. And that waiting to see group, it could be much of what you're talking about waiting to see if it's safe, waiting to see if it works, waiting to see if they'll be rewarded for taking it, waiting to see if they have to take it to keep their job, that the carrot or the, the prize for taking it or the stick, if they don't take it, that becomes a human resources, HR issue that it's very difficult to handle. But Carmel, I would say if you could help us with our initiative and put your energy and passion and role model experience into that. I would ask, education, how do you think is the best way to educate? Do you think videos or online? I wouldn't think so. Or how about groups at the facility? Or Dr. Brian Kudrovsky said on a meeting just 10 days ago that one-on-one conversations about beliefs and worries and fears are the best way. That takes a lot of energy to do one-on-one, I'm sure you could do it.
5: <laughs> Actually, Dr. Harkin, thank you for that. In-service, that's what I'm like. That's one of the things that I like to do, and then to in-service them. Because sometimes to get them, and then I remember that clearly I was doing an in-service for optimum, one of the facilities. And then I was speaking to the nurses and then to the CNAs. I did not realize that there was like, so many, like, people with language by year. So they do understand what I was, like, singing. And I'm, like, privil- I think that I'm privileged to speak, like, Creole, French, and then a little bit Spanish and English, and then talk to them. And as I was doing the end service, and then everybody was there, like, very quiet. By the minute I opened my mouth and then say something in Creole, and then you, saw, and then I saw the engagement. Like they all were like responding. And then I saw the engagement and then I did say something in Spanish. Everybody was like really I'm like looking at it. When it comes from you, from me, like somebody like a nurse practitioner who goes to the nursing home and then talking to them, Did you take your vaccine yet? No, why you are not taking the vaccine? Oh, I don't want to get sick. Yeah, I took my, I did get sick a day, but the fact that I'm getting, I did get it, I did get sick one day, it's better than me going to just like be in the hospital and get sicker and then not taking it and then death can occur because of not vaccinated. And then I remember, and then I think, there's one of them I met, that I sing a song that they used to sing. that was a um don't forget to get vaccinated because like there was a song and then that brings something on our mind and I said do you remember that song and then so together and then I think I can do it and then I can get other nurse practitioners to just go ahead and help me out with like doing those in service one-on-one because we are in the facilities every day so that is uh the least that we can
3: do. So we can do that. All right, we're gonna get you and your whole army together. Cause that, that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I'm very excited about that. I think, um, um, you know, I just wanna just level set with everyone. I, I know that we have facilities who are trying to mandate getting the vaccine, um, making it mandatory. There there are some issues around anything under emergency use authorization. Um, I don't know how those facilities are getting around that. And when we have more conversations, we we should be able to do that. I do know that Pfizer has um, applied for formal approval through the FDA. So this may become one of those um, vaccines that uh, more facilities will say we want to make mandatory to get because it'll have the formal um, FDA authorization and not just other emergency use. I just think we have to have enough ways to reach our, um, our targeted audience and if it means going into a facility, if it means um, putting something on a video so that people can watch it on, on their own, I think it's a, all of the above sort of um, question that we need to be able to, um, to answer.
1: But when it comes to misinformation, you know, the autism myth, and it is a myth, was related to MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. There was one little parascientific article decades ago that asked if there was a relationship, and that became ingrained. And if you ask young mothers today wanting absolutely the best for their children, they will still say they're not getting that, or they don't want that, or they resist that because of the autism concept. And you appropriately said that, that idea of side effects of autism or delayed cognitive development has spread from MMR to all vaccines. It's part of what the anti-vaxxers talk about. See, they didn't tell you uh, about that and it and it, is misinformation. Absolutely. So early on, before misinformation gets ingrained as fact in the long-term care space, we need to educate, as Carmel said. And when her student says, well, I don't want to get sick, the opportunity to get sick from a flu shot is much higher than the opportunity to get sick from COVID. I mean, with COVID, because of the mRNA, we don't have to ask if you're allergic to duck eggs, which is kind of a funny allergy, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but we do have to ask that with the flu shot, you know? Uh, horse serum, duck eggs, developing. These vaccinations are so safe, so safe, And they're so effective. I mean, the flu shot is 50 or 60% effective, and the World Health Organization has to get the manufacturers to start developing the bivalent flu shot a year before its flu season. We were able quickly, with the pharmaceutical companies dedicating 100% of their time, and the theory of mRNA is gonna change all the other vaccinations. No more duck eggs for anything. No more horse serum for anything. It's going to be mRNA because it's fast and it's safe. And that needs to be part of our education. But even when we educate, and Diane, you've talked about this and I appreciate you so much for it. You've talked about the peer pressure. Even if we can just pull one champion, one leader out of a peer group, someone who will help like Carmel to educate others about this is best for you. We want you to live, we want you to be well, we want you to be safe, we don't want you to take COVID home to your family. So the education needs to be scientific and personal.
3: And, yeah, and, I, and I think we, and I, I've shared with you, Dr. Kaplan, and I'll share with everyone, I think we, we need to come from a place of gratitude that we are grateful that you're working in our facilities in our, and, and taking care of our patients even in their homes. We need you to stay healthy. We need you to stay safe. And I think when you approach these conversations that way, much of the way that Carmel mentioned, it becomes a different conversation and a different story. I, I, I am, we, are, we are experiencing some of the, the negative outcomes of vaccine hesitancy within our family, which may have over a hundred people in it. But we've recently had one of my aunts go to the hospital with COVID and she refused at her nursing home the shot because she was because of some misinformation. That may then trickle down to someone else and vice versa. If the patient is hesitant, it may then um, trickle down to others. And, and I think we just need to um, aggressively and um, thoughtfully educate everyone on why this is safe why we need them to remain safe, and how grateful we are that they are here. We don't want any more losses. We want people to be healthy and we want to get over this. We want to, um, we want to be able to look back and say, we want to be able to look back and say that um, we, are, we are moving forward. And I apologize for the internet. We have a storm outside of my window. I think it's just over my house. <laughs>
1: you know, Diane, I know, Bob, you go ahead and I'll speak after.
3: Yeah, let me get myself. Sorry
2: if there was a little symphony in the background there. Our pool guy is here, so the dog is going berserk. Um, So, historically, okay, as far as the sources, S-O-U-R-C-E-S, the sources that people, um, healthcare workers, et cetera, really will rely upon and want to be, I'll use the phrase, want to be influenced by are the two primary are definitely peers. Um, Carmel, first of all, hello, Carmel. Okay, nice to see you again. Um, So important. But secondly, at the end of the day, believe it or not, they still want that scientific related info from a medical professional. Um, And continuous studies really show that. So we, as the professionals, Make a difference, no matter you know what our level. Certainly, obviously, NP, PA, physician, etc. So, um, just wanted to add that from a standpoint of what some of the literature show. I think that's I, right. Kaplan. I think
5: I agree. I agree. Oh, there's Carmel. <laughs> we
1: get to see her.
5: I agree, Dr. Kathleen, because that's true.
1: <laughs> Diane, I think your point about the gratitude issue. I think over and over, when we value and validate the people who work in long-term care, and the patient care staff, of course, the Carmel's of the world, but also the food service staff, the environmental staff, if they don't come to work because they're sick with COVID, then the care just doesn't happen. These frail elderly folks uh, just don't get care. If they don't get COVID, they still don't get clean. They don't get fed. They don't get. They don't get taken care of. And we have to thank, with our hearts and our profession, we have to thank those people for being vaccinated so they can stay alive and stay well and come to work. We've got to have them at work, and we need to thank them every day. I think many of the long-term care staff are motivated because they come to work and they have purpose, they have worthwhile work, they do good things, they make a difference. And we have to tell them, get vaccinated so you can keep coming to work and taking care of the people who count on you, not only your peers and not only the residents, but the other staff as well. I think that's important. And, And yes, of course, Dr. Kaplan, that scientific education about safe, and effective over and over with the facts.
3: Diane? I think that um, it's important to remember and to share with our um, staff that there are no small roles in our nursing facility. There are no insignificant roles at a nursing facility. Everything that everyone does is, is vitally important to taking care of our patients in that building, which is the reason why I fell in love with um, this care setting in the first place because you saw the, the, the need of every single person in that facility. And, and when I think of what makes our environment um, full of heroes is be, because of that, you have people doing a lot of different jobs, but it all leads to taking care of this one resident. And it it's just amazing to me. And I'll, I think I, I will conclude on that. And I thank you all for joining us. We will be reaching out to you to um, get your stories, uh, to, to share your stories. Carmel, we are going to tap you for a couple of different things. <laughs> <laughs> and um, our initiative, but this is, um, I, I I think of this, Dr. Hawk, you could um, let me know if I'm wrong. I think of this as the kickoff. <laughs> the kickoff?
5: I will create a group, because I already have like some people in my some nurse practitioners, like I'm creating a group, and then <laughs> I will get you onto that.
3: Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.
0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club.